And a lot of the little postural adjustments are to adjust the tensegrity. They're to adjust mm -hmm. the little bits of the system so that instead of just having to contract a muscle more, we can actually sometimes even lengthen just slightly something around a joint or a spine around the midsection of the body. And by creating that little bit of length, we add that sort of elastic and maybe we can say fascial strength. Sometimes we can actually get stronger, not just by contracting harder, but by lengthening just naturally. That was Sam Wiest, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights, they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body in ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Welcome to another show. It's always fun to talk about exercises and sets and reps, and I guess you could say the more quantifiable elements of the field, uh, looking at athletes and assigning them training uh, modalities from a, a quantified perspective. I think that forms a very large portion of what we look at when we often look at training. The other side of things, the timing of an athlete's movement, their fluidity, their interaction with their environment, their posture, and how they can move themselves in space uh, from a qualitative perspective. These are things that I've been working on improving in not only my observation, but my ability to help guide athletes to a better form of movement. Uh, and that's been more important to me in my latter years as a coach. I really enjoy uh, how the two elements can really help each other and work together. For me, I, I, I love the idea of improving the movement quality first and building a base of not only technique, but also uh, fluid movement style and how to move well, and then putting power on top of that and bringing in a lot of those, well, having them all the way through, but more of the quantitative methods. This idea has led me to conversations with many coaches. The quality of athletic movement is something I'm innately terrible at figuring out. I've had to rely heavily on many experts to become better at this. And one of the people who I think does a fantastic job of blending East with West is uh, our guest today, Sam Wiest. 
Sam is the head coach and manager of Intention Athletic Club based out of South Florida. Sam is a licensed acupuncturist, a former collegiate track and field coach who specializes in the jumping events. And Sam has had some tremendous apprenticeships that have allowed uh, and facilitated his current perspective, such as Ukrainian Olympic hurdle coach Alex Pomerenko, several master acupuncturists, as well as his continued education within the martial arts. Sam has been a writer of some of the most popular articles on Just Fly Sports, and he was a previous podcast guest a few years ago on the importance of rotation in sprinting, jumping, and sport jumping movements, such as dunking a basketball. Uh, Sam is absolutely a holistic and outside-the-box thinker, and he blends many concepts into a practical uh, manner when talking about coaching athletes. On today's show, Sam and I are going to talk about the finer points of posture, expanding joint positions, and what it really means to train an athlete from a fascial perspective. That's an easy term to throw around, but what does it actually mean when we go into coaching athletes? Sam is also going to talk about how his influences from the martial arts have made a major impact on how he goes about training athletes, and Sam will close with a bit on how to balance a training program based off of a philosophical perspective of yin and yang, or hard and soft, or easy and hard days, and how does that fit into his training regime uh, throughout the weekly workloads. This is a great episode for getting outside the box. It's also one that I think we really can directly tie to our daily work with athletes and that can give us some increased layers of observation for what we really are seeing out of great athletes and how we might go about engaging those in our own training. I'm excited to get you guys this show. Let's get on to it. Episode 256 with Coach Sam Wiest. Sam, it's awesome to have you back, man. One of the questions I really wanted to get into is it's something I've been thinking about more and more. It's just like the quality of human movement. Sometimes it's hard to really put like a, or maybe it's impossible to put a number on that, right? But I know you've done a ton of work in the martial arts. And what are some things that the martial arts can teach us? We tend to say like fascia, fascial training. I think that's an easy objective thing. But movement quality, how well do you move and connecting that to the martial arts? Yeah, so I think there's a bunch of layers that we could, you know, a bunch of different topics that we could go into. But since you brought up fascial training, I think one thing that people, you know, I've noticed people use fascial training and it's kind of like this broad term as opposed to, you know, specifics of like, how are we actually training the fascia? Yes. Um, And I don't think that people really understand. It's kind of like fascial training is this bucket of like, oh, we don't really know what we're doing here. So, (laughs) Uh, but it works and it seems to have this quality that uh, we're, we're saying, Something, something must be going on. It's probably the fascia. We don't understand the fascia. We don't understand why this works, et cetera, et cetera. You know, especially the internal martial arts. So like Taiji, you know, you see me pronounce it with the, the J instead of the uh, CH because the CH was the old pronunciation. I always put a plug in for that. Uh, the G is the great polarity, um, Taiji. And we have Xingyi and Bagua and all these different movements, uh, movement you know, styles, if you will, uh, martial arts styles, movement styles, especially the ones that say they're internal, you'll see that they'll use the body in a different way because they're not trying to use, you know, the same way like an external martial art, which even Western boxing can be an external martial art, the way that they would be using that because you're using different sections of your body in a particular way. And you might be mobilizing different things that I think in strength and conditioning, we don't often assume can or should move if that makes sense. And that's a whole rabbit hole to go down, but to just kind of give you an overview, such as the intercostals, you know, like expanding and contracting. And that's one of the reasons why some of these arts really rely on the breath is because it's not as, you know, and I'm not saying to throw out the, uh, you know, like the contracting and like, you know, taking a belly breath in and then like (laughs) squeezing and 
uh, keeping support because you need that if you're Olympic lifting, you need that for a lot of things. But when we talk about gait, when we talk about something a little bit more dynamic, throwing is another example. There are little movements in the rib cage that if those are off, then the scapula is not going to move right. If those are off, then, you know, then the shoulder, you know, the glenohumeral uh, joint is not going to feel right or the elbow or something else, or you're not going to be able to recruit the right muscles. Like from doing these things and then doing even just like a small amount of extra strength training over the past few weeks, and just like shock, my, my serratus looks like an extra set of ribs, like, because they're all moving. <laughs> like last time I, you know, dove into strength training and like um, some earnest, it was not moving the same way. So we can see that certain parts of the body have to move and have to open and have to close. And another way that, um, you know, not to go on too far of a tangent here, but another way is that some of the language around martial arts is really, I think, interesting to, you know, we talk a lot about force in strength conditioning and training and, you know, speed training, track coaching, all this, but where does the force actually go? And it seems really fluffy. I think at first, some of these like Chinese martial art terms where you're kind of describing this, this is a drilling force and this is the chopping force. So this is, and it's like, these are all little nuanced ways to describe these pathways of, you know, we might even say pathways of energy, but if you want to deconstruct that, there's still a very physical, very grounded movement of these energies. And it's just an easier way because there's so many different little things coordinating together. It's almost easier to put an image on it to put, um, you know, kind of like a almost poetic word is almost a better teaching tool sometimes than like all the nitty gritty, you know, you see a trend now in PT is to do all these little slow. Um, and I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not against PT. I'm not, I'm not talking badly about anybody, but um, do all these slow movements where you're kind of just like, okay, now bring this part of the rib cage down then open this part of the shoulder, you know, like you're doing all these little things and you kind of have to like walk somebody through it. And could some of those things be accomplished with an image or with a specific task or with a specific drill that may be a little less conventional at least some of those things could i'm sure yeah i know when nick winkleman was on he was talking about the power of just using like images or uh sim- like he was say similes the exact word he used I don't, I don't know why is escaping me but basically you're creating an image of something uh anal- an analogy there it is okay yeah so an analogy versus an internal or external cue because of the way the body's language responds to that for and just how integrated it is it's interesting you brought up fascia. I mean, I, I guess I'm the first person who said it, but I, I think even the language, why do we say fascia? It's almost like when we're talking about anything elastic or regarding maybe like the feet or being bouncy, we like to say fascia. But I always feel like, well, you can't lift weights without using the fascia. It's not like the fascia just does, drops out if I'm doing an arm curl. Like I, I, it was Christian Thibodeau who was talking about some strongman, Canadian strongman who like did all these crazy feats. He, I think he like climbed the telephone pole with a, a horse on his back or something. I'm sure the telephone pole had little, you know, pegs to climb up, but all these crazy, and that's what everyone did back in the day. And, but they, after he, I guess, passed away or something, they checked his tendons and his tendons were like insanely big and strong as were his muscles. But I feel like you can't, you can't exert a large force without something else grow like the connective tissue has to grow too on some level but i do think that maybe when people are talking about the fascia i think they're more getting as to like the interconnectedness of the body the way that the fascia connects everything and the feet are going to impact the way the core receives the force and the way the force spirals up and i'm sure it probably is getting developed differently in more elastic movement i would imagine but again i like you said i don't think we don't know 
it's kind of this term that we can utilize. And I think there's a lot that we really don't know about that exactly and what's going on. And you brought up um, an interesting term of kind of tendon strength. So that's another thing we talk about in martial arts sometimes. And what that can mean, there's a few different things that most of these things can mean. One of the things that it can mean um, is adjusting. And when we talk about the fascia, it's adjusting one area of the body to check the tissue length in the other area of the body. So when we talk about tendon strength versus maybe muscle strength, we're talking about adjusting, you know, big muscle strength in the gym. Usually if you see a bodybuilder, they have quite big biceps, but their biceps are not big all the way through the upper arm. They're, they're really centered around one particular area. And uh, the viewers, I'm sure, cannot see that I'm motioning to my center of my bicep. It's kind of like a little mountaintop there. Whereas somebody who has more of a tendon or even elastic structure, and I, I would imagine that the strongman that you're talking about might have something similar, is that you'll often see that the, the muscle is almost more spread out because the tendons and the connective tissue at the joint level has also developed because these things, they might take months as opposed to weeks to really start developing. You know, I see some of these guys who can, um, you know, like do the uh, push-ups, not just push-ups, but like handstands on two fingers. Mm -hmm. They still have muscle quality, but it's not in the same spot. It's really distributed throughout the limb. Um, I think some of that is coordination. And I think some of that is just, you know, developing tendons slowly over time but it absolutely affects the way it kind of uh, spirals throughout the body and everything like that. And that's what a lot of the, like the little elaborate movements that we see when they're done correctly, you know, sometimes it's just people want to be expressive and dance and that's great. But when they're done correctly for kind of a martial or power generation purpose, uh, or in some of the videos that you break down as far as running and jumping, those, those are definitely people manipulating some distal points to affect something proximal or vice versa. Yeah, I never thought about the two-finger push-up. You could compare that. And I know, I believe the martial arts talks all about the strength of the bones as well. And that's, I think, something that we take for granted. And it'd be hard, you'd be hard-pressed, I think, to think of someone who's an explosive jumper or sprinter whose at least bones of the foot were not stronger or denser. or Just in the same way that that two-finger or one-finger push-up person has to have stronger bones. And I'm sure that the, the uh, interconnected web of fascia has to be of a higher quality as well. I mean, again, I was just kind of ripping at it. But again, it's like, we don't know. It's, But I'm sure it's got to be. You know, there's got to be something going on with that tensegrity and the strength of the bones that is giving an increased strength there. Absolutely. And I think that's some of the reason why, um, you know, we focus so much on posture and specific postural cues. And that's um, something that I've been kind of linking up with some of the track and field coaching that I do now is how do we take advantage of the tensegrity system a little bit more when we talk about posture, because there are specific things from some of the martial arts communities or uh, styles of teaching that I've learned that we're looking at as far as, and a lot of the little postural adjustments are to adjust the tensegrity. They're to adjust Hmm. the little bits of the system so that instead of just having to contract a muscle more, we can actually sometimes even lengthen just slightly something around a joint or a spine around the midsection of the body. And by creating that little bit of length, we add that sort of elastic, and maybe we can say fascial strength. Sometimes we can actually get stronger, not just by contracting harder, but by lengthening just naturally. And that's a really interesting rabbit hole to, you know, I'm not saying I have the answers right now, but I think that's one of those things that, you know, as a younger coach, that if we keep following this in regards to sport, I think that we get at some of the qualities that certain athletes inherently do really well which is, we know, take advantage of the tensegrity system of the skeleton. 
you know, some of the best high jumpers that I've ever encountered, the 240 guys, like remember meeting Derek Druin at Florida Relays, like when we were in college and dude, his posture was alarmingly good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw him jump once in person as well. Yeah, I agree. I I totally agree with you. Alarmingly good. It was like, whoa, like I I thought that I knew what good posture was. And then I saw, you know, this person and I was like, wow, I've never seen somebody this height have that sort of posture. It was like, I realized that I've seen some amazing athletes and people that I thought had good posture, but not compared to him. I think that's part of the reason why he's an amazing force producer. Yeah, it's there's more to the the summation of force. And like you said, too, it's it's not just about I think it's easy to just say producing force and muscles. But and something you said reminded me of something that Darian Barr has talked about with me. But the idea of like I could accelerate and punch the ground and I'm not totally I think it's easy to be a contrarian to say that's not going to I think if it emotionally resonates with you and that punch thing and you can harness it, then cool. But like as hard as you punch the ground, that ground's going to give the force back to you and you up in your body just as fast. And you have to be ready for it. And if you can't deal with the force fast enough, well, it's going to go somewhere. And I think it's almost like when we do anything, when we accelerate, we jump, we throw, we have to, we just have to be able to deal with the force as fast as it's coming to us. So that's where sometimes those external, those cues external to our body, it's such an integrated system because it's like, we, well, we have the idea but we also need to be able to have the machinery to deal with how fast those forces are coming into our bodies. And so when you mentioned that, it made me think about that concept of where does the force go? Yeah, where does the force go? And I think, um, you know, when we talk about coaching and teaching movement, that's a big part of some, somebody like Franz Bosch, who's done a lot of work on contractile elements in the skeleton, right? He's talked about like hip lock. He'll talk about his thing, obviously, like the calf in particular and the research, because I don't think you can do research if you're super duper nuanced. I think he's a more nuanced coach than even, you know, some of his research would indicate just because I think it would be too much of a headache otherwise. But the research is just like you hold this part of the body tight and better things are going to happen for you. Or you like just move in this pattern and something's going to, and that's just rerouting force throughout the body. And, you know, not to go in too many specifics, I think I'd need a demonstration for that. But there are certain things if you contract at the wrong time or relax at the wrong time, you're going to be in a whole world of trouble. And even sometimes if you contract and stiffen versus contract and kind of fluidly move, you're also in this kind of strange state. And so I remember there was that study the Russians did a while back that was like on their, the differences of kind of movement quality. And I hope I'm not misquoting this because I don't have the study in front of me, but I remember them, the, their takeaway was that their top athletes were not better force producers, more powerful, stronger, or even, you know, faster in terms of moving their limbs. It was the transition from contraction to relaxation. That was the biggest indicator of who was elite and who was sub-elite. And we're not talking about, you know, like any average Joe sub-elite. We're talking about somebody who's, you know, maybe a 26-foot long jumper, like that sort of 20, like mm-hmm. that sort of sub-elite versus somebody you can jump you know, 27, 28 or higher. So if we're looking at that, I think we start to think about, okay, figuring out like, when do we contract certain joints? Because if we walk around, you know, sprinters don't keep their, their feet tensed every, as hard as they can every step, but like, when do they turn on that contraction? Mm-hmm. Timing is a huge thing in jumping. Like, when do you finish every, every coach I hear to meet, drive the knee. When do you stop the knee though? That's the thing that actually gives you lift. The drive mm-hmm. doesn't give you anything. At one point during the swing, is it supposed to stop? Is it when it's parallel to the ground, higher, lower? 
And also, when are you supposed to finish the jump, you know, and in relation to the knee, if you're not actually, <laughs> don't actually do that, then it also just throws off your timing. The best jumpers in the world have amazing timing. It's not just about force production in some sort of vacuum or positions. It's like, yeah, they, they do them together. And even somebody who will do those things in concert reasonably well, maybe like a B grade, will beat someone with perfect you know, A grade mechanics, if you will, and poor timing every time. Yeah. The, the thought that pops into my head is with the coaches and it's a lot of coaches who will be like, drive your knee, lift your knees, you know, finish here. It's, it's almost like end position itis. <laughs> and in, within that you absolve yourself of all the timing that goes into the process. And to me, it's like that where you make your money, I mean, it is like, the research, it's in the book Speed Strength. I had highlighted it, but it was, I think Robbie Burke talked about this on his podcast. Maybe that's where I got it. But the idea that if we took all the muscles out of the body and built just like a spring mass model based off of bones and tendons and we didn't have to deal with muscles, I don't know how we're going to get the propulsion for this. I don't know how they figured that out. But it's but without that muscle mass in the way you would, and it was just the system moving, you would have a speed potential, I think was 20 or 30% higher. And so it just, to me, it just really highlights the idea of, um, positions and reducing the noise and and maximizing the timing and things like that. And so I I totally agree with you there. I I did want to circle back quickly and I wanted to talk uh, about posture and the long spine. Uh, and I this is where maybe the, the like the martial arts and then I I've only done one session with the Alexander technique, but I've just had a lot of thoughts about especially in the last eight years just about you know, movement quality. Like what what makes an elite athlete? And you've I, I'm sure you've seen it as well as anyone who's been around an elite level jumper, an elite level track, be it sprinter, uh, jumper, triple jumper, whatever, anyone who just manages uh, force and energy extremely well, is they, they almost have like a different movement quality about them. It's just like they're gliding. There's like the effortlessness, especially like in triple jump. But within the Alexander method, I think I like I look at pictures of my face doing, I was just watching, looking through a picture book my parents brought down of me high jumping in high school. And like the look on my face, like when I'm about to go over the bars, like this is like, ah, like it's just like this mostly aggressive, kind of scared, like kind of like a lot of emotions, very intense. And I'm like, man, I feel like I don't think the best athletes in the world have that look on their face. You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's something more to what's going on here in terms of just movement quality and how the mind is affecting how easily you move. And that's what I've been into the last year. And so I went to the I did an Alexander method, which anyone's not familiar with that. It's just like movement quality. It's like use, use of the body, how the emotions, the mind, and how we just move over time. And basically kind of trying to learn to move like a child. And the, the teacher was saying that we do operate best with a long spine. And I think of, I watch my kids and I just see how their posture is so good. You know, and it's like when I'm starting to kind of watch it and wait and see when, when does it start to deteriorate and why and all that. But that that just made me think of that with the long spine. And so I'm just curious that you would maybe elaborate on that a little more. Is there any things that you have taken from like a martial arts practice that you integrate into practice with like a spinal elongation? Or you had mentioned like different ways you can align increases in the tensegrity. And I totally felt that when I was doing that session too. Like the teacher who is so good at this, she's just like kind of, you know, poking me or like light touches here and there. And before I know it, I feel like my spine is like stacking up taller and taller and taller. And yet in so many athletic performance programs what do we just get we just get more compressed and compressed and, comp- and i don't have anything wrong with lift- heavy lifting but we just never look at it the other way and so anyways i'm done i've my rambling here i'd like to ask you 
Is there anything from that realm that has worked its way into practice or how do you address that and talk to athletes on that regard? Grant, so I'm not, uh, I'm not going to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you, you hit on a lot of uh, good points. One that I'll touch base on quickly is the, the compression load from lifting. I think there's a couple things going on there. One, it, we need it to a certain extent for performance athletes because it just mobilizes a lot of tissue at once. Um, and it gives a huge hormonal boost that uh, I just don't, you know, without short of taking drugs or, you know, some other things like heavy lifting, that's kind of, I see it as like a performance enhancer more than even training sometimes just because from that perspective. But I remember, I think it was Dan Paff at some point was saying, or maybe it was Greg Rutherford through Dan Paff. But anyways, when they were working together, you would see Greg Rutherford doing a lot of certain mobility drills to open up his SI because that's what they thought was really getting locked up from the squats. And that, that will shorten your stride, you know, and then you think about where the hamstring starts to really attach and some of the fascial um, kind of alignments of that. And it, it does go up into the sacrum. So if those things are kind of shut off, we do just to, you know, touch base briefly, we do definitely need to address that. If we're going to close an area, we got to open it back up or else we're sending kids to the, <laughs> to the graveyard a little bit when they go out there and it may not catch up with them at first, but I think that's one of the reasons why when I look at, you know, my own sporting career and who, when I was competing in college uh, 10 plus years ago, who is still competing? You know, who went to a program that um, the more lift dominant programs seem to have the more, the folks that started to stack up injuries, even if they weren't mm-hmm. in the spine. Yes. Um, it's not, I don't think it's just the lifting. I think it's maybe something of the mentality, but also I think it has a lot to do with the fact that there aren't that many ways that people have in their standard coaching toolbox or strength conditioning toolbox to really open that up because, you know, like everybody knows how to compress something. You you just bring your hands together and you squish it, but like pulling it apart is a little bit more nuanced. And I'm sure you found that with the Alexander technique is that there are a lot of these little nuances. So I absolutely do that. And I actually started to add separate sessions with my athletes at least once a week. And I kind of recommend doing them every day because they're really easy. And they're one of those exercises, the types of exercises that give you more than they take. So like, you know, you could do these things literally all day long and you could work on your posture, you could work on your standing and you could work on some of these small movements that work on that kind of like fascial alignment, kind of like traction and uh, release and these sort of things. And they give you more energy than you put out because they're very low energy, low cost exercises. And so I'll have athletes doing stuff that'll, you know, like we'll start to feel, okay, if you turn your neck, adjusting that sort of posture so that it comes from the center of your body. And that if you, okay, I flex my neck forward. How do you traction that so that we're actually lifting all the way down through the sacrum and we're actually getting that whole thing to work together. And that's kind of like a nuance you know, that I've gotten from a lot of these little martial art drills and sequences and all that. And just kind of like, you know, you just practice a lot and you start to, there, there's not a lot of other distraction. It's like mm-hmm. either, either find it or you don't, or you just space out. So it's, it's supposed to be kind of a meditation uh, movement discovery sort of tool to some extent, the way it's taught in a non fighting context a lot of times. So we, we do a lot of different things where we find different parts of the hip joint in certain ways. How do I say it? Like, Chinese martial arts has certain 
names for different areas, and I shouldn't say Chinese martial arts, Mandarin Chinese, has different names for different anatomical areas that we don't really always think about as a grouping of an area in the West. So like we, we talk about the inguinal, sort of the internal hip joint as the claw, and that's supposed to move and be mobile. And most athletes that I work with have no idea how to engage that. And that's like mm-hmm. one of those things that you see somebody able to kind of like produce a power or some sort of rotational force, or you see this like boxing out and, um, you know, the NBA or something like that, like folks that can kind of like do that at multiple planes of motion in their hip, um, have a huge advantage on folks that can't. And same thing with, you know, on the line and the NFL and stuff like, like any sport really has that and don't even get started on baseball. Like if you can turn in there, you have a lot of freedom of movement that I don't think people realize you have. And um, it's not like stretch or like overstretching. I think some coaches are afraid of stretching. You know, they're like, oh, okay, we're going to make these folks too long. All right, I have two more points on my rant. First of all, remember that the first, um, if you ever, any sort of research, I think coaches are really, all of us need to be really diligent about where does the research come from? How was it done? Talk to um, Boo, Coach Boo at LSU about he was there when they they did the stretching study that made said people go slower and he was still passively stretching his athletes after the study because when they did the study it was literally just crank the heck out of your hamstring go <laughs> like <laughs> like that's not you know that's like yes. that's not that's, no one was ever doing that if anybody was doing that they were insane so like we need to be aware of um of some of these things and also like if you just find more room in the joint you have find that fluid quality you don't that's not changing the structure of um a muscle that's not like creating more muscle tear that that's just like finding which part of the socket your joint actually moves the best in and i think that's pretty i just don't really see an argument against that you can you can find a way to move without using as much muscle but you still can move with force if you do use the muscle. What's the downside? I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them, I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order, and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. I like the, like, I didn't, wasn't aware of that study idea where, like, Boo was still, I mean, it's just, it's so easy to say something science, but then we somehow think that that's a coverall and, and totally invalidates the need to actually look at how the study was carried out. Which good, I know, um, you know Brett Contreras, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, is if you've looked at his work when he scrutinizes, it was like him and his team would just scrutinize some of these studies out there. And it was just amazing, like the depth these guys are going into. So I think that scrutiny always needs to be paid to something that is just because it's science doesn't mean they did a good job. And that that's really funny. I didn't know that about Boo. 
this right before uh, the show started. It's like the um, the attention span thing. It's just like okay, one thing. It's you know that was there before TikTok. You know that <laughs> we can't blame the, the the children, the youth for uh, for going down that road. We've been doing it as coaches for a long time. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd be curious. Well, one thing first before I ask you about the the martial arts drills, but. I mean, it makes sense to me why uh, like a lot of track coaches might like like Eldoa stretching or fascial stretching or, but it is interesting. Even me, I mean, I'm very guilty of this as I don't passively stretch athletes. It's almost like I've found I need to either do, oh, this is fascial stretching. This is better than regular stretching. You know, this is, this is clearly above all you people who are static stretching, you know, like, or whatever my mind and ego wants to say, or doing like extreme isometric holds like Jay Schrader's style stuff where you're getting a lengthening effect from the tissue. It's more active though. And I, I'll I'll tend to I prefer that or I tend to prefer that, but I don't shoot. When I had my best high jump year at, at you know age twenty one, jumped seven feet. I was static stretching every day after practice. Just felt like it was beneficial, and you know who knows? Maybe I would have been fine the same if I wouldn't have done it. But it definitely didn't. Hurt. I can tell you, it definitely and absolutely did not hurt me. So I do like the nuances of elongating. I've always felt like the stat the Aldoa stuff. Like people feel taller, they feel longer, they just feel better. And I just feel like we don't, we, we tend to prioritize compressing so much. And like you said, too, as to my knowledge, a lot of track and field cohorts that, and this may feed into the latter half of our talk, but the cohorts that really are, you can almost call it like compression-driven cohorts, like he- lots of heavy lifting, even like heavy jump squats and those types of things is, yes, that stuff can get you results. It's like nitrous oxide. But you're also like, it's like, you're also have like a bomb in your car kind of. And, and it, a lot, those groups oftentimes do have a lot of injuries. And so, it, and even, you know, potentially like sealing earlier ceilings and whatnot in careers and stuff like that. A lot of nerves come from the spine. So we think about like, and, and you know, from a therapy perspective, we do see a lot of injuries where we wouldn't say there's a pathological, you know, if you go to the doctor, they're not going to diagnose you with a nerve condition. But we do often see that, yeah, like the part of the vertebrae that lines up with your distal injury, you know, like it might be a little bit more closed, that place. Um, There might be a little bit more pressure on the nerve. And, you know, I always wonder, um, and this is more of like a still a spitballing sort of stage here is like, you know, does that small amount of compression kind of kind of limit limit some sort of connection with the area and have some sort of connection with the injury, right? Because I, I do, I see what you're saying. Like the, those programs, the compression heavy programs, like it's not just spinal stuff. It's there's, there's distal stuff that shows up too. Yeah. It's kind of, it could be all the, all the joint spaces. I don't think we exactly, it's hard to exactly say, right? Like as soon as you put a load on the body, like what, how is the body changing? Matt Cooper's talked about, who's been on this podcast, that talked about like the fascial, the way the fascial tensegrity is going to maybe instead of from the foot up might start going top down like where the bar sits on the back i don't know <laughs> i think it's it's easy to maybe speculate but i i think i think what i do know is those programs do t- they definitely tend to invite injury and i think maybe part of it is just when you have that huge compressive load the way your body has to deal with that bilaterally is just a different balance than what is needed to reciprocate and alternate and and the trick then is well how do i give athletes the enough compression to to be that nitrous fuel that they need and that's going to benefit them to their maximal potential. But then how do I re-expand and re-let like let everything kind of go back? And then have periods of the year where we aren't compressing people because it's like this um, constantly chasing the carrot. I got to keep PR in my lifts. I got to keep getting, you know, that that too. And that almost, it's a whole mentality. 
No, I think that's that's just a huge part of coaching that I think is often overlooked. Is like, yeah, there are certain times of the year we really don't want to do that. We we should just get away from it. Um, I remember, you know, I know some a, a few coaches who have talked about within track and field who have talked about, yeah, like my, you know, specifically in high jump where you don't want somebody to go as fast. That part of the year where they weren't squatting kids, they said, ah, you know, so and so's running too fast. His form is all out of whack. Like he's not used to handling this sort of speed. Let's put him under a barbell hmm. a few days before the meet and make him slower. Interesting. And so like that actually is a way to make someone <laughs> move slower. And that's sometimes what I'll do, um, you know, sometimes unbeknownst to the person I'm working with when I'm trying to work somebody back from an injury and I want them to go all out is I'll, I'll do something, you know, the days before in the warm up or something like that. That's going to, it's going to take a little juice out of the system. So they, they, going to feel 100% but they're not actually going to be running as fast as they can. And so we can we can manipulate those things. But obviously if we're looking for the opposite and we're just looking to run as fast as we can, <laughs> yeah. That's the opposite point is that maybe we shouldn't be uh doing that all year. Interesting. It almost makes me think and this is me just speculating, but I think about they talk about anterior chain dominant sprinters or maybe just you call it sprinters who like to be on the ground longer, whatever more yeah. muscular driven sprint type folk they need to squat like every 10 days or they kind of lose it <laughs> like and maybe that is tone in the anterior chain but maybe it also is like just if they don't get that maybe they're not on the ground as long as they need to be i I don't know you know like i i just think there's interesting that i never heard it put that way before that's a really interesting concept but it does make sense to me um because yeah like it's just like how force is the how fast is the force coming back to you working timing and and i've heard that the idea that just squatting really i think it might have been like Sparta science or something. It says something like, it just helps you to hold on to force longer. And that's how they were registering on the force plate. But just doing squats helps me to hold on to force longer. So like a standing vertical jump is the prime example of where I need to hold on to force longer and to, to get to dig a little bit more and to be able to generate that from a standing position, whereas it's kind of the, the opposite in some other elements. So yeah, it's a complex situation, but I, I'd never thought about it that way. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. They might, those sprinters might need to, you know, be on the ground longer. And that may really, those folks may really need that. I think, you know, to, to kind of bring it back to some of the movement pieces that we talked about too, is um, engaging kind of the, the interior of the body. You know, we talk about a lot about interior and anterior, sorry, and posterior dominant athletes. And, you know, sometimes to take it back, there was that Japanese study they did on um, their sprinters versus the Safa Pal because yeah. Safa was the show at the time. And they were like, our sprinters have bigger muscles everywhere except for the psoas muscle. And, I, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, there was a big craze about the psoas mm -hmm. for a little while. And it seems that it's kind of died down. I still sometimes hear it um, used as kind of like a chuckle mm -hmm. of like, you know, this isn't happening. So it must be the psoas. Yep. Um, <laughs> sort of like a same thing I was, you know, Again, not trying to offend, but just kind of seeing fascial training lumped in. We don't really know what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's somewhere in here. It's probably this one because that seems to usually be the problem. But, you know, if we don't have alignment through the pelvis, we can't engage the psoas and we can't force that with other muscle groups. And I think that's one of those things that, um, you know, be activated in RPR get right is that, that you can't force those muscles to work by just engaging other muscles. I think that you still need to learn that in an athletic context. But you, there, there are ways to engage posture without just throwing more tension on the system. And, you know, that's, that's partially like internal-based cueing. And one thing that I think is really 
you know, we talk a lot about internal and external queuing. I don't think the distinction is as clear cut as people make it out to be, because there's also imagery that will allow you to almost be thinking about your body parts and your limbs as if they are external, even though they're on the inside of the body. Internal queuing, I think, you know, when it gets a bad rap, it's like put your hand here mm-hmm. and put your finger to 90, you know, like stuff that doesn't make sense. But there's also a way of thinking about it like, okay, feel weight in your tailbone or like drop your chest and like physically, that's a big one in the strength conditioning world, I know. So like, you know, drop your rib cage. But you can also do that without force. And you can set up if, uh, efficiency that sometimes you don't need to use force when you thought you needed to use force because your whole tensegrity structure can just deal with some of these forces because you're in the right spot to engage the elastic tissue. When I was um, tra- doing my own training session today, it was kind of one of those, the, the Monday training session, I, I know a lot of times it's like high-powered nervousness today. For me, it's usually shake the rust off and kind of gear up for a good Tuesday type day. I, I program that for athletes a lot as well, but today I, I did a lot of, um, I mean, again, it's a cover all to say fascial, just say like elastic work, like a lot of kind of high repetition, like you know, low end, like bounces, jumps, bounds, and just trying to feel things and learn things in a new way, which is, I guess, typical Monday or, or pairing it, pairing it with a long today, I actually paired the bounds with uh, longer low knee sprints and just trying to see how those mix and match. But um, I was doing to warm up, I was doing like a lot of foot stuff and a lot of the uh, hyper arch hop that Chongji who's been on the show uh, talks about. Basically, it's like a two leg hop where you are squatted about a quarter of the way down and balls of the feet. And I was actually noticing um my my pelvic floor and how like the, the guts the, there's been people on this show talking about how the guts and the organs will bounce off the pelvic floor and just notice how when i do that hop and i internally rotate my legs on on its own i just notice that that pelvic floor is tight it's like a drum and it's trying to be a tight drum so the the pelvic floor can't bounce very far and then if i let it go it just everything just kind of loses quality but if you watch me from the outside you would have no idea what i'm doing you would have absolutely no idea and you might see a small change in movement quality, but that is substantial. Like that is a big deal. The ability to control the guts because when it gets high speed, now it's a big deal. And so I haven't gotten that far in my coaching yet. I, I mean, I, I do so I can eventually hopefully coach when an athlete might need that. So I wanted to ask you, the, let's start with this, the martial arts drills you mentioned. Uh, and we can throw, if you have any or have any examples or there's videos, I'd love to put them in the show notes. That'll be on the website. But without, obviously, video, but the best you could describe some of these drills. Because um, we, we've talked a lot about it in the alignment. And I know something like the Alexander technique, it'd be like impossible that I couldn't explain anything that this practitioner was doing to me to help me stand up taller, just touching the right parts of my spine and back to give me sensation there. But uh, is there anything you can describe with how you integrate that into a session that's devoted to some of those expansion elements of a long spine? I think that you're on the right track with what you're doing um, as far as feeling the connection. You know, that is a fascial connection from the arch to the pelvic floor, which is one that certain styles of martial arts. And again, some things that I integrate into my own uh, coaching are things that I'm pretty well versed in because I've practiced them for a long time. And some things are things that I've just, you know, seen from another school and been like, that is what I've been looking for to create that sort of quality or like this person needs that. And I keep seeing this type of person. So there's definitely a style of Taiji that will literally do that and sort of, you know, connect the pelvic floor and the arch. And that that's a big part of um, how they strike. But there's also, um, you know, when we talk about the tensegrity structure, that's a whole 
system, right? Like it really is, um, it's everything that's could possibly be a part of your uh, physical being, right? So there are ways that you can um, kind of adjust your head posture where you'll also lift up the pelvic floor without having to do anything else. And so those sort of little things and I'll, one of my main things that I'll have folks do is I'll either start or end, but I've tended towards starting recently, these sort of like restorative. And again, like I'll throw a bunch of other things in there. It's not maybe just one thing. We might be doing some stuff that looks like fascial stretching or something else too, or maybe even a circuit or, you know, something like basic to warm up. But that part of the program, I might even start with just like standing posture. You know, we do a lot of standing meditation, a lot of the internal martial arts styles. And so one of the reasons that we do that is to kind of build these internal connections and let these parts of our soft tissue, parts of our fascial system, if you will, or it really just everything that's working together, helping that to just kind of like knit together in a certain way. Um, and so just having that intention sometimes is, is enough to really start to get somewhere. And I think it's difficult because it's difficult to deconstruct for that. The reason that you mentioned that is if you watch somebody who's doing these things, they're not going to look much different from somebody who's not these sort of internal sort of contractions or, you know, pretensions, rotations, these sort of things. They're not going to look much different, if at all. And so then you start to deconstruct somebody who's an elite level performer, and probably they've been a pretty dang good performer for most of their life. So they're not going to know if they're trying to like communicate their experience to somebody else, they're not going to know that somebody else, you know, in your example, doesn't have the pelvic floor pulled up in that sense. They would never be able to convey that without having lived in somebody else's body. So it's one of, it's a really interesting um, thing of how do you actually start to communicate these things. And I think that's why I tend to, not only because I think it's what people in general need is, you know, more stillness and more, um, more calm and clarity in their life and regardless of athletics or anything else that they're doing. But that is another reason why I kind of prioritize a little bit of like meditation or meditative movement in some of these sessions or really whatever we do with athletes and try to be mindful of my language in regards to cueing and coaching, because we want folks at least sometimes to be in that really internal, internally focused state to the point where they can start to feel some of these things, because if you can't feel them, then how are you going to start changing them? We ran into this problem a lot when I was coaching, I would take away video. You know, I know it's the 21st century, but when last time I was coaching a college team, <laughs> sounds like I got booted for it, but uh, unrelated. Anyways, uh, last time I was coaching a college team, there were times in the season where I really would say, we're not going to we don't want you to look at video after these jumps because you just want to see like there's no connection between what you're seeing and what you're feeling. We need, especially people these days, because everything is so visual, so technological. We need people to go back into their bodies more and more and more and be able to actually feel where they are in space, feel where their limbs are in relation to one, you know, to each other. And if we can do that through movement that's wonderful but sometimes we also need to just kind of affect the way someone's mind is working and kind of maybe cut off some of those uh, outside distractions because we can't otherwise we have no place to go with this stuff like this stuff is all great in theory 
But if we can't get folks to really just like go inside, then it's a little bit difficult to start teaching these things because some of those sensations, when we start to talk about the tensegrity structure, and this is from my own, you know, practice, my own conclusion, assumption, what have you, is that if I didn't kind of like get my mind back into my body, I probably, even if I had stood for the same amount of time, done the same amount of work, probably would have missed those things. And I think that's the spirit of some of these internal arts that I'm hoping to kind of like carry over a little bit into the sporting realm as well. And so you can't, I think, just take the physical form and just overlay it. We've got to really use the spirit of it as well. And that means going inside. Yeah, that's that's heavy stuff. I feel like that's it's a concept that I think in in this industry or just working with, with athletics, the things that are the most popular are always the easiest. It's do this lift, get this result. That's very simple. Do X, get Y. The further down the rabbit hole you get, you start to get in more complexity, more timing. Okay, that's another level down. There's less people who are going to be interested in that. And then you get into the, like, even, I mean, I, and I totally get what you're saying. It's just, it's taken me, I'm 37. And if you would have said that to me 10 years ago, I would have been like, uh, okay, show me a different, wait, wait, show me a new complex training circuit. You know what I'm saying? Like, but you start to spend enough time around, like, so Derek Drew and like elite athletes who are just are so good and fluid and that was it was a huge blessing for me to work with swimmers for seven years because you would just see like the elite the elite swimmers were those who just had a relationship with the water that was unlike others like their ability to sense and flow and it's a 3d immersive sensory environment and they could sense and flow and pick up the water in a way that other people could not and so the question then becomes how did they get like that and i do think although it's not the water track or or any other sport or throwing a ball or whatever you are still interacting with that object in a sensory level that's a deeper level. and But to get into that is like, you know, we're talking about like, here's the lift, that's one layer deep. Lift, give me better jump. And like, that's like seven layers deep. That's stuff that is pretty. And so, I mean, I think it's really important. It just, it is more complex. And so I'm trying to wrap my head around. I, I'll, let me just speak to maybe a couple of things that you said quickly. Or do you have anything to say with that before I keep going? Because I'm kind of rambling. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say maybe a, a place that meets in the middle for this is I think between an exercise and what you're saying is I like, I've talked with my wife about this because she loves, so Tommy John, who's been on this show a few times, um, he does a lot of like spinal flossing, spinal hygiene, extreme isometric holds like Jay Schrader stuff. But when Tommy does his isometric holds and my wife has, has like told me this because she would do a spinal flossing routine and really likes it. But Tommy's posture when he does an isometric is like, it is a meditation to him and you can see it. Like it's just the very elongated spine. You can just see by like the look on his face, like the breathing that he is truly experiencing the movement. I don't want to speak for him too much. I would like to think if he's listening to this, that he would agree with me. (laughs) But it's just you, sometimes I think you look at someone doing an exercise like that. And I think an isometric is an easy way. Well, like you said, a standing meditation is an isometric. And that's where I think some of those, a lot of people listening to the show are familiar with extreme isometrics or, you know, a standing straight leg raise, uh, an iso lunge, hanging from a bar. Alex Lee, actually, who wrote an article on hanging and how good it was, uh, he speaks of hanging from a bar as a meditation to him. And so I think that, yeah, and the breathing is an important part of those extreme isos. It's through the nose, four seconds in, eight seconds out. And I try to tell when I watch athletes do it, working with younger athletes now, and I see a lot of really bad postures and I try to like, Use the the imagery or the allegories to say like be like Superman or Superwoman or you're trying to get these kids fired up to to have something internal change right like that's not just do the exercise and that's where I think 
I, I do think, and I think a lot of people listen to us do use those isometrics. So maybe that's a place that we all can connect and say, okay, like maybe let's look for something more that's happening internally when we're doing these things. Yeah. It's not one or the other, you know, like it's, um, that's definitely like, yeah, that's, I feel like the next step from like a stillness based calm sort of exercise is to be doing something where you can have a, you know, a little bit more stillness than you would be when you're, you know, on a basketball court chasing mm-hmm. down a loose ball. Just kind of giving people the opportunity to go inside a little bit, giving people the opportunity, maybe in a warm up, to take a moment where there's not music blasting or something mm-hmm. like that, and just kind of get back in their own skin. But absolutely, isometrics are a place that um you can start to play around with some of these tensegrity relationships too. Even I maybe it's out of favor. I, I check the internet now and then. Uh, sometimes it's in favor. Sometimes it's not in favor. Sometimes it's rotation. Sometimes it's anti-rotation. But you know, core training, whatever, you could do a plank like that. You can do like the, I've seen the extreme isometrics that you're talking about. Absolutely. I don't use the specific ones, but absolutely. Those are, um, you know, a way to kind of like pry open certain areas of the body under tension. And they're wonderful for that because to some extent, like if you just have that sort of tension and you just kind of keep it around as you go through these motions, things will change and things will change pretty rapidly. And that's kind of what you're, that, those would be, you know, if you had to choose one thing, like, those, those are definitely in alignment with like, if you didn't have a lot of time or a lot of resources, just, yeah, th- those will probably change some kids. Yeah, I know it's, it's a complex topic, especially having dug into it with like the swim coaches and like what you said too, with the sensory really preceding people who just have to see things like people who it's almost like we've taught not to go internal. And it's fortunate that things like headspace are becoming more and calm. These are becoming more popular, more commonplace. You know, if this was 20 years ago and someone got in a time machine and was fast forward to the future, they'd be like, what's all this meditation stuff? I thought that was just, to-, you know, like it's becoming more. And so I think like it's only natural that perhaps there is this fusion of the meditative space. And then you said the standing or the exercise, the hold, the isometric, like we're we're fusing these together. And I I'd like to think that this isn't <laughs> that we are more ready to be accepting of things like that. And if you're a coach, you see it. Like I remember I'd speak with like basketball strength coaches on that kid who's like the grinder. Like he's the the hardest worker on the team, but never gets to play because everything is a grind. You know, everything is just the solution is just more work. But if that person did an isometrical or a meditation, they would go crazy, like not go crazy, but just you can see it. You can see it in people's countenances when they're doing typical exercises. There is something that is that there's some essence there. So Hopefully, basically, if I was to kind of summarize it, perhaps in a way that I'm always trying to like package stuff in a neat box, so you have to forgive me. But like, if I'm trying to kind of do some of these things in a program practically, maybe I'll say a little bit like of how I would uh, approach this is yes, you can use like the isometrics and treating that as a meditation, doing like fascial stretching, aldoa stretching, spending time, taking time to expand. I feel like I had one other thing in there, but I, the, if you have a martial arts video, I'd love to throw it in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll look for something that might be relevant. But I think one other thing is that once you kind of have a foundation in some of these things that like you were talking about, um, Alex Lee's article talks about hanging as a meditation. It's like you can t- you can take some of the mental if you build the mental qualities in one place, it's a little bit easier to just kind of overlay them on another place. If I'm warming up for something, there are things that I'm going through some of these um, connections in my body that are just kind of like circulating. I'm not in a still space at all, but I'm, I'm still doing that. Like I'm still going through the same sort of postural principles. I'm still going through the same, um, 
you know, sections of my body, finding the same alignments, finding the same connections of uh, tissue that I would be if I was standing there. And so I think, um, you know, like that's some of just the language. And then um, also as far as coaching, the intention of what you're doing. And I think uh, having athletes be really aware of like, which part is the intention of this versus that most of it, most of practice, especially when you work with young people, going to be external. Like it's going to be outward. It's going to be fun. It's going to be loud. It's going to be mm-hmm. boisterous. Like that's normal and that's fine. I'm just saying like, yeah, you, you could also add just like a little, a little tidbit of um, something else at the beginning, at the end. And over time that'll accumulate a couple minutes makes a big difference and it doesn't even have to be still, but it just, there are different ways to kind of talk somebody back into their body. You mentioned the apps. That's all an app does. An app can't do anything else for you except for you listen to it. Right. So that's the only thing it can do for you. And as a coach, you can do something similar. It helps if you have the background in it. You mentioned uh, 20 years ago, bristling at it. I remember, yeah, when I was growing up, that was like, there were two separate spheres, you know, like, it's like, Oh, like, you know, like you're an athlete or, or you're, you know, like, what are you like a, a yogi, a yogi in a cave or something? Right? Yeah, yeah, like, are you doing yoga? And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, NFL guys that were hurt for a while started doing some yoga and people kind of got open to it. Acupuncture is obviously like a lot of people in pro sports get acupuncture, get cupping, get Chinese medicine because it works. Like, and the same thing goes for some of these kind of like softer restorative sort of techniques that you can do for yourself. Uh, Another category of exercises that I think, I don't know if I brought up yet, but you can get into some of the same mobility type of exercises that I would give somebody as a therapist for yourself. And not like just a Kelly Sturette way, but um, which is great. I'm not knocking that at all, but you can also just kind of like move joints and circles in different ways and kind of figure eight them. And you'll find that some of the rust gets knocked off too. So like a lot of these things, I'm going off on a tangent again, but a lot of these things you can really, a lot of people can do for themselves if they go inside and you can kind of, you can be a lot of experts for yourself. First lines of defense is more of the word I'm looking for, for yourself before you even get into the other stuff. If you know yourself, if you can go inside a little bit, I think people are realizing that overall. Culture, the culture is going in that direction. We can't go the other way. <laughs> yeah, I think we've gone. Yeah, we've gone so far outside. Like, like you said before in the show, like just the coach who says, "Just get to this position. Just drive your knee. Just you know, lift more weight." Like these are all things that those that needle has been pushed about as far as it can go. And at the end of the day, you just wa- watch the athlete actually compete, and you'll see something different. And so, trying to get to that. Um, well, shoot, I, we were going to talk about, and maybe we still have a little time to talk about how this balance works out in a training cycle. And I think we can here. So you wrote a really cool article recently, and we did touch on this last time we talked on the podcast. You spoke about the seasons and how each season kind of corresponds with like the winter with, with strength. And I think the spring was the speed or something like that. I, I, you would say it better than me, but there was different, um, correspondences in the training year. And I'd like to, at least for a few minutes, get past that in the sense of, um, or expand on that with, you wrote the article on the yin and yang of training, like expanding and contracting, and maybe just take me through a week of what is, how do you build your training for your high jumpers, looking at those principles of balance, and how does that fit into your system? 
Yeah. So I think a week uh, approach is pretty good idea. So we obviously do all the same work that everybody else does. I just try to be more aware of when we actually are kind of putting energy out when we're taking it in and when it appears. And this is where kind of like the concept of yin within yang uh, comes about is when it appears that we're spending energy, but we're actually getting a lot in return. So, you know, if we do a speed power session where we're lifting heavy and we are sprinting, that's mostly yang. That's mostly expanding. That's mostly putting energy out. It's fast. It's aggressive. A um, lot of contraction. Like that. That's um, kind of like the peak yang. Whereas peak yin would be like a complete day off. But we can also find other modalities to kind of balance that out. Um, and it also helps us to understand each individual training session. So when we go to the track, we don't start, you know, just sprinting right away, right? It's understanding like how do we lead into the warm up. Like we have to do something that's a little bit more on the yin side as opposed to just jumping into sprinting or else we'll get out of balance. And that's how we end up with an injury. Um, And the same thing goes for over the whole course of the training year. And also, you know, finding places within the program where we're mixing in mobility, where we're mixing in ways to come down after practice too. And when do we want to come down after practice and when maybe we don't? After kind of a circuit day, after a day that we've spent, we've got a lot of lactic buildup. We should probably come down after that. You know, we've got a lot of things in our body that we want to flush out. We want to move around. So, so some ways to do that is just a normal cool down, stretching, foam rolling. Um, but we can also do some breathing exercises. We can also do some, you know, sort of shaking type of exercises to kind of manipulate blood circulation within the body. And those are really interesting, you know, kind of ways. I remember. Um, it seems to be in the Soviet training lexicon and maybe not in the American one, but the idea of like, we know in America, you know, we know in the Western world that blood goes somewhere and we get a pump when we work on a certain area of the body. I remember, um, but it was never explicit until I worked for a Ukrainian guy, Alex Panamarenko. He's an amazing coach, an Olympic coach for Ukraine back in the day. And he was, you know, he was always kind of like looking at like, okay, we've got a lot of blood pooled up in this area at this point in the session. How do we balance that out? So how do we balance? And that's part of the reason why he would throw in certain like randomly pushups at certain points (laughs) of a workout or something like that, because he was like, we got to get the body to bring some blood away. It's, you know, we've done a lot of heavy lactic stuff um, in the legs. We need to bring it away from that area. (laughs) The, the swinging, like kind of like loose swinging sort of stuff is a similar purpose, similar but different. And we can just kind of see how these things, balancing these things, I think it's sometimes easy in the short term to kind of forget about the restorative stuff, but that's what gives you longevity. If you don't have that stuff, you don't last very long. And then you also start to get tighter and yeah, you're more prone to injury. Like you're tighter, you're slower, you're more prone to injury. I can kind of build on that in the sense of, I think about swimming. I mean, it's really anything like like playing a game of basketball is that what's going to impact you or, or hit you harder from a training perspective, playing a few pickup games where there's a big diversity of movements, you're never digging too far. There's never probably, I guess you could say blood pooling in any specific area versus if I went and sprinted down the court as hard as I could 30 times and then jumped up as high as I could to try to touch the rim, like I'm probably going to, that's going to hit me a lot harder. I think about my time in swimming, I would see code, like the, the beauty of swimming is you have four different strokes. You have backstroke, you have, you know, freestyle, you could flip and do 
use a completely different like set of patterns. And so I would see coaches who would like, who would see athletes be able to go faster in practice if they did like four backstroke fifties and then flip over and do a freestyle versus if they did all freestyles. So I, I most definitely understand that for that. I just, that's interesting, like pushups, like just to get the blood going in a different area using the different parts of the body. I'd never heard that. And it sounds really cool. Forms of getting out. So the article online talks a lot about training components, but this is more within the physical body. Whereas yin, whereas yang. So mm-hmm. we have uh, yin is kind of like all the areas. If we were a four-legged animal, this is just like the way it's you know probably typically maybe was thought up or just whatever. The areas that the sun would hit on your back if you were like on all fours are generally yang areas. So the back, the sides of the you know legs torso back of the neck etc etc versus the um yin more like you know if you would picture like an animal that doesn't have hair there or something like it it, it'll stay uh shaded from the sun essentially that was a convoluted long way to say but anyways so when we think about that those are other ways that we need to think about how we train athletes we need to balance these opposing forces or else we're going to get an injury so in the swimming case that makes a lot of sense you're using a different form of muscle groups And you're also stimulating different parts of the body. Even in running, we do that too. Like I'll have folks doing uh, bounding backwards. One of the best things I've seen, um, what's his name? He does a lot of like the knee stuff, knee ability. Oh, Ben Uh, Patrick. Backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what he's made his uh, name on, right? Is like a lot of backwards stuff. And, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm not, (laughs) I'm always resistant to giving somebody props who's on Instagram a lot, but like he's uh it works like doing backwards stuff it really actually does affect your system um because it does stimulate some different areas and i think some of that has to do with obviously like balancing out muscles and some of that also just has to do with like restoring circulation just moving joints in different ways because i don't think it sounds so simple and i I wish you know i could uh kind of like fancy it up but just getting the joints to do something that they're not doing otherwise through like a fuller range of motion or something like that. That's super restorative. Body loves that. Body just like likes to like explore and move and, uh, you know, be reminded why it maintained that range of motion in the first place. So when we do that sort of stuff, we start to like really recover as opposed to sticking in the, he's doing the same thing over and over and over again. We start to get stagnant, like literally blood, like everything will get, start to contract more, which is adaptive. But also that means that the blood will start to pool in those areas and you'll get less circulation over time and more, and more compression. And those things lead to overuse injuries. That's like the mechanism of an overuse injury. Um, and people don't always kind of associate that, um, I think. Or like, I, I don't know. I think they do when they start to think about it. But it, there's just a lot of easy preventative stuff that we can do throughout the training cycle, just bringing people down from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic after practice. And it's like, it really, it really makes a difference over the course of a training cycle. And I think people that do well within the, the programs that, that don't emphasize that tend to be people that do that well in their life. Yeah. The backward stuff's awesome. Like I started doing a, like a hill workout with a workout group at the uh, gym I'm training clients at here and that was back at back started that back in August and one of the big workouts was just basically run like you might run like 150 meters up the hill walk down run 60 meters up walk down then run up backwards walk down side shuffle up walk down side shuffle the other way walk down and then you go do the 150 and you just felt good like you just felt you just felt more athletic doing that 
than just running up and down a bunch of times. I like it so much more. And it also made me think about Bobby Stroop talking about how you do, if you do pro agility before you run the 40, you run a faster 40. I think it's no reason that basketball players, uh, the further you would get away from basketball, like high jump, right? Like you tend to lose your spring a lot of times. You're just doing the same straight line, run a curve, jump over and over and over again. The body wants those different directionalities. So I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I, I think that's also maybe why I've never seen a high jumper that I've worked with, like lose much spring when they've gotten away from basketball is because we're, we can do plyos in different ranges of motion. We can do things that are, you know, 180 degrees. We can do a lot of bounding forward and then a bound back. And like that actually has to teach you, uh, you know, how do you orient your body to take off? Sometimes it's better to learn something over exaggerated than it is to learn the actual skill. So in order to go take speed and go straight up, Sometimes it's easier to learn how to go forward and then go backwards and then meet yourself somewhere in the middle. That's another way of teaching a skill. Yeah. I, I like, I also used to think about like a, doing a tempo day, like a high, low. And I don't know if we have time to talk about how this fits into like, you know, a high, low training system where it's like Monday, Wednesday, Friday are hard. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday are easy. But I like the idea of on a tempo, an easy day, if I'm just going out and running some easy 200s, like maybe I pull a sled backwards for 40 and then I'll wait a minute, then I'll turn around and run and then maybe I'll go do the sled again and then I'll turn around and run. And just to try to give, if I'm going to recover, I'm going to give you a real multilateral recovery experience. We're not just going to go run and go easy. We're not just going to lift easy. We're going to work triplanar. We're going to work 3D and work reciprocating and work all sorts of directions. That's like what Boo, Boo says, Coach Boo, on the easy days yeah. I want as varied as I can. And yeah. that's a big part I, I, of it, I by that <laughs> like that that's absolutely we're we're completely in alignment there you just gotta that's the time where you can just get in all this variety all this movement you know the the rest is uh sorry the work is the rest in some ways we're we're in addition to doing all these things like people forget that like a lot of the high impact stuff it'll you know from a therapy perspective it'll knock like the joint a little bit offline and make a you know an injury more likely so if you do all these ranges of motion you do all these um you know, sort of multilateral, multiplanar, rotational, all these things, it's more likely that's just going to shift back into place. And you're going to have no problem. You never knew there's a problem or a potential pitfall, not even a problem. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's preventative medicine. Yeah, I love it. I, well, shoot, I wish, I wish we could break down the yearly cycle, the monthly cycle, the daily. I think we don't, we've sadly run out a little bit of time with that one. I do, I do what you did say, though, maybe I just touch on this as you said finishing a day with a parasympathetic so like i think that's something that you know people have their big day it's a it's french contrast day or it's sprint you know time your fly tens or whatever it is like just tell me a little bit about cooling down like get stimulating the parasympathetic system how are we looking at doing that yeah i've started to do this more and more um just because i've realized that if i don't and somebody leaves the practice either hurting or even just like super hype from that mm -hmm. uh you know high neural day that they go home, they don't sleep, and then we have to spend all week recovering. Mm -hmm. um, so one way that we can do that is I like to go through some sort of just like shaking sort of process. So we're kind of like working on shaking out some joints, just like big open ranges of motion, kind of dynamic mobility, work into something that's like maybe a little bit slower. It, it could have an element of like tensile strength, but it's not really, you know, necessarily even a circuit. But we might do some things that almost maybe for martial arts that almost look like yoga stuff, you know, where we're kind of like opening up some ranges of motion, opening up the spine a little bit. And then we're kind of bringing someone down because if you take them at that, you know, they come off a French contrast, they come off a, you know, 42 inch hurdle hop 
they're not going to go into like a breathing exercise and have any degree of success with it. Mm -hmm. So if we can kind of like start with something that's like a little bit more muscular, a little bit more movement oriented, bring it down to a place where it's a little bit slower and then bring it even more down. And then they can maybe do like, you know, finish up with a couple deep breaths or something of that nature. And then all of a sudden they walk away and they're like, Oh yeah, I, I could go practice again. Like I was like either super jazzed or super wiped. And they feel kind of like back to baseline. And um, it's something that I've, as a coach had to uh, sort of check myself and I think add more formally sometimes because I, I do think it makes a big difference in what you're able to get. If you work with somebody every day, what you're able to get in the next workout. Yeah, I agree. I, I, <laughs> I saw this thing. It was on like the golden ratio in music and it was like, you know, the Fibonacci moment or the five moments, like the apex, it's like the natural apex of a song. It had like queen under pressure. It's like 0.61% through the song. You get to this peak and then it's down. It's like, oh yeah, like that makes sense. We spent about two thirds of the workout building up and then one third coming back down off it, something like that. And I just thought that was, but I think we just, so often it's like we build it. A lot of times it's like, we might build up real fast and you hit that like your big squat set right away and then just spend the next 45 minutes just bumming around doing auxiliaries or whatever. Or you just crush the last fly 10 and go home, you know, like, you know, it, or it, I just think we need to appreciate that, that like curve, a curvature and, and how we build up and cool down. Absolutely. I think I just keep running into the same thing, which is like either they uh, get out super jazz and then they don't sleep or they're just like wiped and they're still wiped the next day. It's like we got to, you know, sometimes we can really manipulate like the way you start and end something is the way you remember it, right? Mm -hmm. People don't tend to, that's like a principle of memory is that you remember most at the beginning, then the second most, I think it's the end. And then somewhere in the middle, it gets sometimes lost a little bit. And so if we want somebody to get back to baseline, we want their body to remember what baseline is. We still, just because we do all this training doesn't mean we want somebody to walk around 24 hours a day in training mode. Like most of your basic functions only work mm -hmm. if you uh, are not in training mode. So we, we really only need to train so much. Yeah, right on. Yeah, that's it's it's easy. The easiest thing in the world is just to keep training and keep pushing the gas. Anyone can keep pushing the gas pedal down, but to know when to turn it on and off, just like those Russians with the muscles, it's that's the yeah, key. So. It's the alternation. That's the that's the balancing. That's the yin and yang. I think that's a good way to maybe for out of time wrap it up. Is that that's the alternation of the two being able to turn on turn off is i think the key to sport and a lot of things in life yeah for sure well maybe next time we chat we can really get into the nitty-gritty of it i know we're just able to cover it for a few minutes at the end but that is so true so true that's why that you know magical program doesn't really exist it's it's the fine-tuned alternation and knowing when to push and back off and session uh from the session to the year so anyways i wish we had more time to chat sam Thank you so much for being on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Joel. It's a pleasure to be on you. That wraps up another show. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you enjoy what we're doing, you can really help us out by leaving us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to the show on. So iTunes, Spotify, uh, we really appreciate you guys taking the time to leave a review. And we will see you all next week.